What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where. Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist. The Economist. Hello, and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogunbiyi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Since neighboring Ukraine has been at war, Poland has been beefing up its armed forces to protect itself. And it seems their new government is likely to keep up that military spending. And this year, the show Homes Under the Hammer celebrated its 20th anniversary. What does the hit TV show reveal about the British psyche and the harsh reality of a souring rental market? But first... This is a Fox News special report. Good morning from Washington. I'm Lauren Blanchard. This is CNN Breaking News. Now it is no secret that the former president... Public trust in American media has plummeted since the 1990s. The bulk of this decline comes from conservatives, spurred by Republican politicians who accuse avowedly non-partisan news sources of liberal bias. Such charges are hard to assess fairly. Stories regarded by one party as following the facts will often be seen by the other as ideologically slanted. The fake media is trying to silence us, but we will not let them. Most public estimates of media organizations' partisan leanings or bias rely on subjective ratings. But The Economist's data team has been working to change that. So we wanted to find an objective way to measure the partisan slant of different American news organisations. And we did that by using quite a rigorous, quantified approach. Ainsley Johnston is a data journalist at The Economist. And our results showed that conservatives are right to feel aggrieved. Some supposedly centrist news organisations do actually have a bit of a left-wing slant. But those results should be taken with a pinch of salt. Ainsley, how have you come to that conclusion? So the first thing we did was we wanted to find a list of partisan terms. So we looked through 10 years of congressional speeches, so speeches made by Republicans and Democrats in the House and Senate. And from those, we extracted short two-word terms that were used either solely by Democrats or solely by Republicans. So one good example might be Republicans may say illegal aliens, where a Democrat would say undocumented immigrants. We've all encountered undocumented immigrants in this country. They're hardworking people who aspire to move up the ladder, but they start at the bottom. CBP is now saying it's releasing 6,600 illegal aliens into the interior every single day. We then took these partisan terms, 
and we looked through hundreds of thousands of newspaper articles and television transcripts, counted them up, and then used these counts to create a score for each news organisation for each year. Finally, we took all of the articles or transcripts from each news outlet, amalgamated them all together and calculated a final score for each publication in each year. And what do these scores show? So the scores show that journalists at most publications tend to prefer the language used by Democrats. So of the 20 most read news sites that we could get data for, all but three use Democrat phrases more often than Republican ones. And the same was true in TV, where Fox News was the only channel where conservative language was predominant among America's six leading channels. Also, we find that the disparity has actually grown since Donald Trump took office. As a result, the number of American media sources that cover both sides in a balanced language has fallen to zero. So Ainsley, which outlets are driving this leftward lean? So it's mainly driven by changes from news sources that were once close to the centre. So, for example, CNN, during the first year of Mr Trump's presidency, actually used more Republican terms than Democrat ones. But since then, it has really drifted far more towards the left. If we look at MSNBC and other evening news programmes like ABC, CBS and NBC, they all had small left-leaning scores in 2016, but since then have really drifted quite far to the left. And for written journalism, the shift has been a little bit more subtle, but still the same pattern. So if we look at mainstream sources like the New York Times or CNN's website, we can see that they have also made small but very consistent shifts to the left. And you said that this trend has happened over the last decade or so. Why is that? So there are a couple of different ways that this trend could come about. In theory, it could be that these publications have changed the subjects that they cover. So perhaps they're covering more Democrat-favoured topics like healthcare or civil rights. Or it could be that they're covering exactly the same topics in exactly the same numbers, but they're using different language to describe these topics. Luckily, with our method, we could actually break this apart. And we found that actually the vast majority of the shift towards the left was caused not by what was being talked about, but how it was being talked about. So the changes in subject matter account for just about 6% of the overall drift to the left from 2017 to 2022 in print media. And the rest is just differences in the language that's being used. Okay, so in some sense, the media has become a little bit more left-leaning in the language that they use, but you said that these results should be taken with a pinch of salt. Yes. Our analysis suffers from two important limitations. First, even though we had a very large data set, it still contained only a small fraction of the total media output from the US. There was very little data from important publications like the Wall Street Journal. We had no social media, radio data at all. And second, our scoring method can't distinguish between changes in ideology of the media and differences in political polarisation of the two parties. So it could be that journalism has become more left-wing, or it could be that Republicans have just shifted far more to the right than Democrats have to the left. Either of these could result in the media tending to use more Democratic language than Republican language. Obviously, I'm aware that it's a bit odd as the media to be talking about the media, but Ainsley, I'm intrigued. Where did The Economist fall in your metrics? 
How should we take on bias as we head into an election year? Well, funny you ask. When we ran all the articles from The Economist through our model, we found that The Economist was, in fact, the closest to neutral of any of our publications. Again, there are a few caveats on that. We tend not to focus on US politics quite as much as other media organisations like, say, The New York Times or The Washington Post might. But still, we were pretty consistent over time and stayed pretty close to the neutral line. And in terms of how we should think about our own bias or our own ideology heading into this election year, it should still be possible for us to write about any topic while still using relatively neutral language and not playing into the hands of one side or the other. Ainsley, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you, Ori. And you can find much more detail on this from Ainsley and the rest of our data team on The Economist website. And if you're a subscriber to Economist Podcast Plus, you'll be able to hear even more analysis on Checks and Balance, our show on American politics, tomorrow. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. In October... A record-breaking 74% of the Polish population came out to vote in the country's election. And that bumper turnout brought with it a change in tide for Polish politics. The populist right-wing Law and Justice Party held power since 2015. And under their rule, Poland moved away from the European Union and adopted many more conservative social policies. But the October results saw law and justice overpowered by a coalition of more left-leaning parties, led by Poland's former two-term prime minister, Donald Tusk. Law and justice has been delaying the handover of power for weeks. But yesterday, Mr Tusk and his cabinet were finally sworn in. And while much is sure to change in Poland with this shift in power, not everything will. Feelings about the war raging on their doorstep supersedes politics. Apathy or of Ukraine fatigue, this is something unacceptable. Because, in fact, we are talking not about only Ukraine and the war. We are talking about our future, I have no doubts. Mr Tusk is already in Brussels for meetings, looking to garner EU support for Ukraine. But whether the meetings are successful or not, domestically... Poles are still united on the critical nature of the war in Ukraine and what it means for their country. What is not going to change is that there's a strong consensus across Poland on the need for record levels of military spending. Matthew Simons is a contributing editor at The Economist covering defence and security issues. In March last year, the parliament voted almost unanimously for a Homeland Defence Act that raised the military budget to 3% of GDP, which is well above the NATO target of 2% of GDP, and also established an additional fund for modernisation of the armed forces, 
worth about 9.5 billion. Nor was there any real sort of pushback when the then Prime Minister declared in January this year that because of the course of the war in Ukraine, Poland must arm itself even faster and push the spending target up to 4% of GDP. Matthew, remind us, how far did the last government get on with rearming Poland? Well, they placed very substantial orders to increase the army's firepower, worth between 30 and $40 billion. And in addition to that, they said that they wanted to double the size of the armed forces to about 300,000. That obviously is a longer-term goal, but that is what they said that their intentions were. And do you think that these efforts will continue under a new government? Is rearmament a priority for the public? Yes, I think that the answer is that it definitely will. When NATO carried out some opinion research, they found that 80% of polls favoured maintaining or increasing military spending. Unlike Ukraine, Poland is a NATO member. So why do the polls still feel so threatened? Well, that's a very good question, because Poland is covered by NATO's Article 5, in which an attack on one is an attack on all. But you have to think about Poland's history and geography. It sees itself very much as a frontline state. It's been warning about Putin's intentions for years. And they worry, I think, that the Ukraine war could come to, from a Western point of view, an unsatisfactory ending. And also they are worried that if Donald Trump becomes US president again next year, given what his attitude towards NATO is, you know, would NATO be there for them in the event of an attack? So they're hedging. They want to make sure that if the worst does come, they have powerful armed forces to confront any enemy with. And when you said earlier 3 or 4% of GDP is being spent on military spending, how much are we talking here? Well, they made very substantial orders, both with the US and with South Korea, which could rise to around $135 billion over the next decade. So apart from an earlier agreement to purchase 32 F-35 fighter jets, they ordered from America... 486 HIMARS rocket launchers for about 10 billion, 96 Apache attack helicopters for up to 15 billion, and 48 of the latest Patriot air defense launch stations. But what really stands out as well is that they've done a $14.5 billion deal with South Korea, and that includes 1,000 tanks, 180 of them which will be delivered very quickly. That includes 672 self-propelled howitzers, 288 multiple rocket launchers, and so it goes on. It's a very impressive list. And now, what challenges does Poland then face in beefing up the military in the way that they want to? Well, I mean, first of all, I think that some of these contracts may need to be looked at again by the new government because they were done very speedily. So there may be some renegotiation of them. But by wanting to increase their capabilities across such a wide range of systems, they're going to have to have the training infrastructure to do that. That's going to cost more money and take time to put into place. In addition to which, 
the idea that they can simply ratchet up the strengths of the armed forces to 300,000 is being greeted with quite a lot of scepticism within Poland. Poland has a falling population, one of the lowest birth rates anywhere in Europe, and just getting that amount of manpower into the armed forces is going to be difficult. Matthew, thank you so much for joining us. That's been a pleasure. Here's our property. It is a two-bed, mid-terrace house. Now, in the auction catalogue, it said that it's bigger than average. If the British dream exists, Dion Dublin has lived it. He is, after all, a former footballer who became a landlord. Duncan Robinson writes The Economist's Badgett column about Britain. As a Premier League stalwart, Dion Dublin reached the top of the national sport. Pallister up there as well. Drops his double! As if that wasn't enough, as a present on Homes Under the Hammer, a wildly popular daytime TV show about the buy-to-let or buy-to-rent property market, he is a symbol of Britain's national obsession, becoming a landlord. Homes Under the Hammer is currently on its 26th series. More bedroom that you could fit loads of furniture in as well. And there's more stairs. Let's have a look. Each season now consists of 80 hour-long episodes broadcast every weekday at 11.15am to about 1 million BBC viewers. That's about a third of all viewers at that time of day. Oh, nice. This is spacious. It unites retirees pondering what to do with their nest eggs, students seeing if they can recognise their landlord, and curious football fans who wonder what the 1998 Premier League Golden Boot winner is up to. As he says in the intro of one episode, There are all sorts of properties making dreams come true here on Homes Under the Hammer. In this particular case, the dream is a two-bed mid-terrace house in Leeds with water damage. The house has a problem with a leak in that corner and a leak in that corner. I can't quite see where it is because it's, it's behind here somewhere. Sure, it has its problems, but it has a guide price of £99,000, or $121,000, which, once fixed up, could easily achieve a rental yield of 8%. That's a big bathroom, though. You could put a freestanding shower in there and a bath, your toilet, your sink, the lot. And this is a... For an insight into the British property market, it is narrow. But for a glimpse into the British psyche, there's nothing better. The format is simple but compelling. Viewers are taken around a dilapidated house by Mr Dublin and his co-hosts. <laughs> The inside doesn't quite match the exterior, but who cares? Um, that's the kitchen there, and as you can see, it's in a right old state. After an auction, the buyer unveils their plans for it. Tell me what you, you thought about it when you walked in. It could be a Kraken property. I think it will be a Kraken property. Sometimes all it needs is a vacuum and an open window. Sometimes it needs gutting from top to bottom. Tell me what the plans are for it. Open that up. Underfloor heating, new kitchens, three new bathrooms. Oh, nice. With all load of glass, so you can look down the garden. Oh, wow. Whether the property is immaculate or still a building site, the transformation is greeted with whooshing sound effects. At the end, an estate agent walks awkwardly around the property before offering a valuation and a potential rental price, which is greeted by the new owner with delight or dismay. Rental-wise, again, all done, all ready to move into, somewhere in the region of £500 per calendar month. I'm OK with that.
Buyers include the professional, the canny, the dodgy, the greedy, the naive, and the hopeless. Intentions vary. Some buy property to flip it. Others, although it happens rarely, plan to live in it themselves. But fundamentally, the show is so typically UK because it shows the British dream, which is not so much owning your own home. It's about owning someone else's. The show's longevity should not be a surprise. It launched in 2003. Although buy-to-let mortgages were introduced in 1996, it took until the mid-2000s for them to permeate the national consciousness. Britain has since become a nation of landlords rather than shopkeepers. There are now 2.8 million landlords in the country, making them as numerous as retail workers. Given the option, Britons will eagerly pile into property and steer clear of an index fund. This one, at the moment, has a lot of potential. Now, however, the dream represented by Homes Under the Hammer is coming to an end. Generous tax perks for landlords on mortgage interest have been hacked back. Regulation is also becoming stricter. Landlords will soon no longer be able to kick out tenants for no reason. Unreasonable bans on pets will be outlawed. (coughs) Meanwhile, tenants now have a bigger voice in politics, because there are more of them. In 2001, barely one in ten people rented privately. Now a fifth rent from someone like Mr Dublin. In London, one in three do. Because a nation of landlords is a nation of tenants too. The British dream has also become a more expensive one due to increasing interest rates and resilient house prices. Sticking money in a savings account can now generate 5% in interest, which rental yields in London will struggle to match. A typical tracker fund may be volatile, but it will never call you in the middle of the night about a leak. Even so, Homes Under the Hammer ploughs on, showing that with the right mix of capital and renovations, you too can one day own someone else's house. For some, the British dream will never die. all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show. You can drop us a line at podcasts at economist.com. We'll see you back here tomorrow. What's next in innovation? That's not the right question. It's where... Puerto Rico is more than just a tropical paradise. It's an innovations paradise where startups and global players coexist in a vast and vibrant ecosystem where talent runs deep, highly skilled, and bilingual. Plus, Puerto Rico has the most competitive tax incentives in the U.S. If you believe your business can go anywhere, this is the place to bring it. Find out more at investpr.org slash economist.